Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Nick, how are you doing today? I I had a pipe burst on my houseboat today, and so things are a little up in the air, but uh, the boat hasn't sunk, and That's good. the pipe's fixed now, and so we're all good, yeah. That's awesome. Other than that, I'm doing great. Good, good. Um, could you give us a quick bio and some of the big things you're interested in? Uh, bio for me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, my name's Nick Breisowitz. I'm the Director of Strategy at the Long Now Foundation. Um, Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit here in San Francisco that's focused on helping people think about time in a more expansive sense. So we're thinking about, instead of, you know, thinking about now as this conversation or this election cycle, this semester, this business quarter, we're thinking about now in the context of decades, centuries, millennia, and, you know, famously uh, the 10,000 year time frame of our original project, the Clock of the Long Now. Um, the Clock of the Long Now is a is a mechanical clock, the you know, inside of a mountain in West Texas that's designed to keep good time for the next 10,000 years. Um, and they've been uh, the founding members of the Long Now Foundation, Danny Hillis, Stuart Brand, Brian Eno, Peter Schwartz, and Kevin Kelly have been working on that project since uh, the late 90s. Um, so I am uh, the director of strategy at the Long Now Foundation. Um, my background is in systems engineering and philosophy. And so that's most of what I'm thinking about is, is how to create systems and how to think about systems that are going to help us. Um, yeah, that are going to help us. That's super cool. I, how did you first get interested in, uh, in studying and, and working on the long-term future? Um, you know, I think, I think whenever you're thinking about, if you're really thinking about something deeply, the idea of second order consequences, third order consequences, knock on effects of what you're doing should come up um, as something also worthy of thought. And as soon as you start thinking about what happens after you do the thing that you're thinking about doing, what happens after that thing, you start stretching your thinking out into these longer time scales that I think eventually come up against the limits of the human lifespan. Um, there's only so much we can do in our, you know, three score and 10 years um, on earth. And so you end up with this certain limitation that then the question is, well, can you transcend that limitation? Can you endeavor to build or to think or to have an impact beyond your lifetime? Um, I think that's a natural next step for thinking to take. And so for me, it was really just about thinking, thinking about my life and, and what I want to accomplish in you know, in the small window of time that I have here, what seems most worth accomplishing? I mean, philosophy is, is you know, an attempt at an account of the good life and what it means to, to live the good life and what that would look like and how we would even talk about um, or how we would even decide amongst, you know, alternative um, opportunities, alternative paths in life. Um, and so, so as soon as you start thinking about those kinds of things, you start running into this idea of multi-generationality. And then the question is like, you know, do you just go for two generations or three generations? What's the appropriate number of generations to be thinking about things at? And 
you know, the civilizational time scale itself is 10,000 years. Um, we came out of an ice age about 10,000 years ago. It's when we started having agrarianism and walled cities became, became the common way of life for human beings. And so when you think about how long civilization has been around, about 10 millennia, um, and you think about the next 10 millennia, that becomes, puts you right in the middle of this, what we call the long now, right? This next and last 10,000 year period. So I think it's really a natural landing place for anybody who's thinking about their lives and then the impact of their lives on this civilizational project that we're in. Um, it's kind of natural to come up against that limit. And of course, you know, geophysicists will take it out to hundreds of thousands of years and cosmologists will take it out billions of years. And so each of these timescales has certain affordances um, and I think um, certain affordances and there's certain things that are kind of covered over as well, right? Um, if you're thinking about cosmological timescales, for example, you know, you're, you're not paying attention to a lot of the kinds of human drama uh, timescale phenomena that we think about, right? Um, something similar for 10,000 years. At 10,000 years, some things become much more salient um, and then some things kind of recede into the background a bit. Definitely, definitely. I, I love that that approach of thinking about, you know, 10,000 years, it's the right time scale to think about a really long time for human civilization. Um, I think that's a great framing. I'm curious, you know, the economic growth for the past 10,000 years, incredibly flat until the Industrial Revolution, just quite recently, it would be this tiny blip on the uh, on, on all of human history. You know, I, do you think it's an anomaly? Uh, do you think it, it, it's a it, it's a growth trend that we can continue kind of this hockey stick growth upward? Or do you see things like leveling out? And, and how should one kind of think about that? That's a big question. It is a big question. Well, the, the first thing I'll point out um, that I'm sure you're, you know, you're aware of and, and sensitive to is the idea that the things that we're measuring, we talk about things like economic growth, um, are not all the things, right? It's, it's a subset of things, right? And so it's a finite set. Um, and that finite set of things is ensconced within what I would argue is probably best apprehended as an infinite set of things. There's a lot more to the world than our apprehensions of the world, right? Basically, the first thing I'll point out is just that whenever you're measuring these kinds of things and you're looking at trends, you're looking at a subset of the whole. And if you focus in on a subset of a whole, all kinds of things become really interesting and apparent. And just like the time scale phenomenon we talked about, where there's like a, a Goldilocks zone, there's a right time scale for the right kind of thinking, for the right kind of intervention. Um, ditto for metrics, ditto for any kind of uh, what Heidegger would call like the inframing, uh, Gestell. Um, he Martin Heidegger was a early 20th century philosopher who's kind of known for a critique of technology that runs in the same line that I'm sharing right now, which is which is just kind of pointing out that our apprehension of reality has certain limits um, and that those limits themselves determine what it is we end up seeing. So, you know, and, and so it sounds like a bit of a dodge because I'm kind of questioning the model here. And I guess in, in one sense it, it is, although I think it's an appropriate dodge because it's hard to say it's hard to say what things mattered across 10,000 years, right? Um, we have some remnant um, artifacts and writings from the last 10 millennia, but we certainly don't have the whole of it. Um, and I certainly wasn't there to experience all of it. And so for me to say from my perch here in 2021, um, what are the parameters 
of concern for all of human history, that's going to be a, a decision that I'm making here in 2021. And then I'm kind of back, I'm like painting a picture going backwards with my 2021 determination of what matters and what needs to be tracked, right? Um, and then ditto going forward, right? So I'm gonna take my 2021 apprehension of things and reach out in another 10 millennia. Um, I don't know if that's always, I don't know if that's always the best way to go about things. I mean, there's real practical reasons for it. I mean, first thing I'll say is, how else am I supposed to extrapolate in either direction other than with the 2021 picture? Here I am in 2021, how can I be anywhere else, right? So there's a certain sense in which I'm, I'm kind of stuck here with the, the models and the frameworks that I have at my disposal for thinking about the next and last 10,000 years. But at the same time, I don't, I can, I can practice some reticence in conflating my model of things with things as they are, right? So I guess this is to say that in the next 10,000 years, you know, you know, wow, what's up with this hockey graph? Do we think this is going to be, you know, extensible? And it's like, well, I mean, no, but I think we, the reasons for why we won't be looking at this hockey graph um, certainly aren't apparent to us right now, but I think are going to seem almost trivially apparent in the future, right? Uh, and you can think about other historical examples of things that people were high, like, just think about anything that people are concerned about. Uh, reach back like more than 100 years ago and look at what people were concerned about, what they were worried about, what they thought was going to be a big problem. It almost seems, you know, it almost seems, um, there's a certain interpretation of history where it almost seems childlike, the things that people used to think were important and now we're so much more, um, so much more well, well informed and well educated, we wouldn't make these mistakes now. Um, but I think there's a certain kind of temporal hubris to that, um, which kind of paints ourselves as being the apotheosis of all things. Um, when in truth, we're, we are the apotheosis of a lot of things. Those, the, a lot of those things are things we're tracking pretty accurately, right? Um, as far as civilization goes, there's a lot of things that are happening in civilization in 2021 that are that are apotheotic. Can I use that word? Yeah, um, that are that are like they are achievements um, when looked at, you know, through through a lens of history in a certain way. But it's also, I think, really interesting to think about what opportunity costs and trade-offs some of those achievements have involved have required of us um you know are there things that you know we, we we had a lot of gains in certain parameters but do we have losses in other parameters are we even aware of all of the losses you know that might be there and then again likewise moving forward when you think about the next ten thousand years there are a lot of things like i i'd like to think that in the future if we go out a thousand years or 10,000 years, a lot of the things that we're struggling with as a civilization right now are gonna seem quaint. That would be the hope, right? That we would have figured this stuff out. You know, we've thought about it deeply. We've tried a few things. We've run some experiments. We figured out some things that work. And now these things that used to be challenges and problems, almost insurmountable challenges and problems no longer are. So that would be nice. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. Uh, projection out of this moment into the future. Um, and at the same time, there's, it seems to me, reductive to avoid the concession that there's going to be things that we've lost in that process. What are those things going to be? And, and, and who's keeping the grand total? So there's this sense that like, um, we want like an index. We want a single figure that sums up all the other figures and says, just on net, 
are things getting better hockey stick graph style going through the roof or, or are things getting worse or what's going on? And I guess I, I think there are limitations to how useful that perspective is. And those limitations are things like, you know, very focused interventions. You know, there are things that you can track, see how the trend lines are going, see where we are, see where we might be going. That's, that's a useful way of thinking about um, the future under a certain aspect. But I think when we take a step back and we look at things as a whole, um, it becomes really reductive to look at these kinds of trend lines. I think it just, it, um, it can be intoxicating because especially some of these exponential trend lines, um, it, it tempts interesting parts of the mind, right? Like what is it gonna be like when you're up against the wall of an exponential curve? Like, what does that look like? How do you, how do you even grok that? Um, and I think it's worth thinking about that stuff. I think it's lot, there's a lot of food for thought in there. Um, but most of the time when I talk to people about this, uh, there is this mistaking the, the map for the territory or the, the menu for the meal, as it were. Definitely. I, I think that's super wise. And I, I think um, it, perhaps this is something we all fall into, but there's definitely that we definitely have some kind of temporal hubris or like, you know, we live in our own time. So we, we judge everything by our own standards and, and um, you know, that that's kind of our reference point, but there's a lot of things we don't know. And I think that's a good reminder just to, just to keep that in mind. When you, when you look at all these uh, just how humanity has progressed over time. Um, so, so I guess I, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm deviating off the outline, but I'm curious. So uh, do you, I get the sense that you don't think progress is something that's automatic. Automatic meaning like inevitable. Like, like, yeah. Like, like a wig history kind of thing. Like, you know, you know, uh, history moves in kind of this northeasterly direction towards some, some good thing. Yeah. I think the answer is y yes, but I think it's like a trivial yes. Okay. Like um, very it, high, high noise. Well, so, so my earliest point was that I think the, the, the set of things that we're concerned with when we're looking at trend lines that are going up or down or yeah. staying static um, is a finite set. That's a finite set that is, is situated inside of an infinite space, right? Because gotcha. um, I, I guess, think about this, like how, like we, we can look at like how much faster cell phones are getting at, at, right. at proce yeah. processing speeds, right? Okay, is that something that like, medieval Christian scholastics would have been tracking or thinking about like, it's like, no, this is like a parameter of concern that's just erupted into existence, but we had to invent the parameter right. that we're tracking, right? There was a time in which that parameter wasn't even a parameter of concern. And when you look at the future, I'm imagining the number of parameters that we can't even fathom right now, you and gotcha. I will, um, is, is, is out of scale with the number of parameters we're tracking, which means you know, even if it's not theoretically infinite, it's pragmatic, it's practically infinite. And so what I'm arguing is that like, if you have, you know, you have a world in a state and then you're going to track how that state changes over time. Yeah. There's going to be readings of that world, of that, that whole lump of everything. There's going to be readings that are available to you in which things are getting better. And obviously so there's going to be readings available to you um, that are like readings of decline, 
right? Where things right. are just getting worse and obviously so. And then there's going to be uh, readings of stasis where things aren't changing at all, that it's all cyclical. It's just more of the yeah. same stuff, right? It's a merry-go-round. Uh, I think uh, time is a flat circle. Isn't that the true detective term? It's like there, there are these different readings. And so this is like a, what, what I would call like a hermeneutic, right? Like, which is like, how do you interpret what is happening? The change? Like, how do you interpret it? So one way is to be a realist about something like progress and say, no, 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 no. The things that we're tracking that give us this upward trend line, yeah. these are the only things that matter to humans. And therefore, human civilization is progressing. Obviously, so um, I'm, I'm, I, like I'm, I'm in agreement with the general observations, right? Like that, like yeah. yes, these things you're tracking are getting better and awesome. And I am an absolute cheerleader for things getting better for humans, right? Yeah. Um, but th but that's not like that's the only story. And again, there's this temptation to reduce everything. That yeah, there's gotcha. bad stuff in the world. Yeah, there's good stuff in the world. Yeah, there's stuff that's staying the same. When you sum it all together, though. What's that arrow doing? And I think that's what I'm calling into question. Is this the possibility of summing it all together? Can you fit an infinite number of things, which includes all these things that don't even exist yet as parameters of concern? Can you fit all of those things into a finite set of concerns? Like that's, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can do that. And so, so it's, it's useful. Hermeneutics can be useful because you're looking at things under an aspect that is revealing something. So when you look at the hermeneutic of progress, it's revealing something about civilization, right? Now, I don't want to jump ahead and say what it is that it's revealing, but it's certainly revealing something. And it's something worth paying attention to. It's something worth tracking. It's something worth thinking very deeply about. But is that the whole story? Like, is that it? Is there is there no uh, story to be told for hermeneutics of decline? I don't think that's true. I think there are really compelling hermeneutics of decline um, that are out there as well that are worth paying attention to, if only to further the, the, the project of progress, which is to make things better, right? If only to track things that are declining because we don't want them to decline anymore and we want to intervene. So I think there's, there's, there are reasons for us to be alive to all of these different hermeneutics, um, not just the ones that not just the ones that tell the story that we want to be true. There's a lot gotcha. of different hermeneutics, but the progress one I think is obviously one of the more, one of the most interesting ones. Like if you want something to think deeply about, um, all of those up into the right trend lines should give everyone pause for reflection um, and, and, and consideration of how they can play a role in that, in the world getting better and going up into the right. Because I think we all fundamentally want that. I don't know too many people that are actively working for hermeneutics of decline um, or stasis for that matter. Um, well, I guess that's a separate conversation. I, I can imagine some people arguing for a hermeneutic of stasis. But I think, yeah, I think the progress story is one of the most important stories we can tell each other about each other and about what we're doing. Because it, um, it does reveal things about humans. It reveals our agency. It reveals the kind of stuff that we're capable of. It reveals the kinds of achievements that we've already achieved. When things seem impossible, it reveals to us like, no, we've done the impossible before, right? So there's there are all of these really beautiful things that are present in that story. It's just not a, it's just not a final assessment. It's not, it's not the only story in town. That's all, I guess, my, my only addition to the, to the story. Oh, I, I love that. I love that. And and in the in the story, do you think people generally overrate their agency or underrate their agency? 
in the story. I mean, I mean, I think people, again, like agency is another one of these hermeneutics, right? There are, there are really good reasons to believe that you're capable of anything. And there's really good reasons to have some humility right. about what you are capable of. There are really good reasons to want to be an actor and to kind of thrust your will into the world to kind of make a dent in the universe as it were, right? And then I think there's a lot of good reasons to abide and to allow things to happen. Um, there are all kinds of things that, you know, internal to you that you allow to happen without your intervention. You know, you don't have to worry about breathing too often. You don't worry about, about beating your own heart or digesting your food. And I don't know about you, but I'm quite glad that I don't have yes, to spend nice. a lot of time. You know, I also, you know, the things that I do have to consciously keep track of, you know, every now and then I screw them up. I would hate to screw up beating my heart. That seems like something I'm pretty happy is, you know, kind of um, gets done automatically for me for the most part. Um, so there's a sense in which, like, again, do people overweight or underweight their own agency? It really depends on the situation there. I can imagine a ton of different stories in which people are vastly overemphasizing their agency and their ability to direct the course of change for the universe. Like that's a thing human beings do. They <laughs> overestimate that. But human beings also deeply and I think tragically underestimate what they're able to do as well, right? And so it depends on who you're speaking to. If you're speaking to people who are like early on in their careers and they want, you know, they want to, there's some kind of thing that seems impossible, but you know, it might not be impossible. You got to try it and it's going to take a while and maybe it's going to take you 10 years. But like to the to those people, don't you want to say, well, please try, please try to be as agential as possible. I would love it if you were able to achieve the impossible. That would make things a lot better for us. Um, but then again, I think there's situations in which people have a lot of hubris about Definitely. what they're able to do. And I think there's also some wisdom in maybe um, knowing when you do or don't want to intervene. Like maybe even if you could, you don't. Um, I think reticence is also one of these skills that could be, um, that you could counsel for people too. So I, again, I'm just, I, I hate to feel like such a dodge on these things, but I think, I think these are good questions, but they're part of richer uh, complexes of questions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's super. Um, going off the agency question, you've had a really awesome career, you know, from music to working on the very long now. And I, I'm curious, do you see them as, as fitting together in, in some way? Or um, it, it, do we just tell ourselves stories about how things go together? Do you know what I'm saying? It, it's, it, it kind of goes along with, I think you were just talking about. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, I have a story in my head about how it all fits together. Um, and, but that's, but that's what it is. It's, it's, it's sense-making that I can tell you was not obvious in the moment. That is for sure. Um, I, this is not part of a extensive architecture of a career that I've plotted out when I was like a, a teenager. And now I'm just, you know, I'm not just executing on the plan. I'll tell you that. Um, that said, there's a lot of ways in which it does make a lot of sense. And one piece leads into another piece leads into another piece in a way that is just very satisfying narratively for me, you know, and, and that's kind of the story that, of course, I latch on to. There's also ways, you know, and things I could focus on that make absolutely no sense, are completely bonkers, discontinuous, like absolutely just anomaly um, ridden chapters in my life that I couldn't really explain. And in both directions, good and bad. And so, again, I think sense-making is important. It allows me to tell you where I came from, where I am now, where I'm going. 
uh, the long now project, you know, this this long time scale of concern is this. It's a sense making, you know, practice. It's we're saying, okay, this is what happened across the last ten thousand years. Now we're here. Now there's ten thousand years coming, you know, up up ahead. And now, you know, and here's the story. Um, but it really is just that. It, it, but the stories have uses, right? If I really felt like I woke up every day and there was no connection, uh, no sense between where I went to bed and where I woke up. Or like what I was doing yesterday and what I'm doing today, if it all just seems like absolute chaos, um, that's not going to be very helpful, um, I think, at all either. Like even to the extent that it might be intellectually honest, there's a lot of chaos, uh, a lot of noise in the system. Maybe maybe the signal that I'm latching onto is a really weak signal in a really strong sea of noise. Um, maybe that's true, but I I think perhaps maybe part of the project as I see it is amplifying the signal within like the loud noisy space it's it's how do we how do we make the signal more identifiable how do we how do we track it and then how do we how do we tune it you know where's the signal going so again to the agency question this all kind of comes around together um which is like yeah when you're when you're looking at all of the infinity of things going on in the world that don't seem to make sense or hang together can you find a through line through all of it and and can you do that in your own life I think it's a practice. I think, you know, whether it's whether you get there through journaling or through psychoanalysis or through talking at the pub with friends or, you know, writing a memoir, whatever it is that helps you iron that story out for yourself. Um, you know, good for you, whatever helps you. Um, we need we need all those good sense making practices that we can get. Um, for me, it, it hangs together mostly in the realm of aesthetics and appreciating a certain felt sense for things. Uh, being better with a certain amount of like adjustments to them, like critical adjustments. And so, you know, long now is a, is a critical adjustment on our default sense of time. You know, my felt intuitive sense is that we are, we are a little too attuned to the short term and we're a little, um, we, we are in need of more attunement to long-term phenomena. You know, we're very good at noticing things that happen on, you know, one day time scales or now with Twitter and stuff, like even like minute or hourly time scales, we're pretty good at attuning ourselves to this kind of information. Are we good at attuning ourselves to the kind of information that rolls in across a decade or across a century or maybe maybe even like a millennia? Um, I would argue we're not really good at that. We haven't really built that skill set, mostly because we haven't had to, you know? Um, like think you know predators in our environment, things like you know lions or something, um, they they act and they threaten us on a time scale that we are attuned to, you know, like, like that kind of movement, the movement of a jaguar in a jungle is movement that my like organism is going to be pretty well attuned to, hopefully, hopefully to avoid, I would hope. Um, but, you know, the movement of something like climate change or antibiotic resistance, or think about pandemics, right? Like pandemics, the kind of pandemics that occur once in a century, um, or, you know, even worse, once in a millennia, you end up in these situations where are, we're not really attuned to that. We don't know what it is to, develop a civilization scale awareness that transcends individual generations, individual lifetimes. So doesn't that seem like something we should get better at? Like that's my felt sense is, is the aesthetic sense that this is underemphasized and could do for more emphasis. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's a, a worthy um, thing for me to commit my time to is to what extent can I be, help, can I be helpful here in helping civilization better attune itself to long time scale phenomena. But when you're making art, when you're making music, when you're writing, when you're doing philosophy or any of this kind of stuff, what you're looking at is all the prior work that came in front of you and you're seeing what's good in it, 
all the stuff that got you into it. You know, all the music you fell in love with is the stuff that made you a musician. All the philosophy that you read and fell in love with is what makes you want to write philosophy. Um, but there's adjustments, right? There's like certain differences that you're like, well, this would, this could be even better if, and the question is like, okay, now it's, now here's where agency comes in. Are you going to make it better now that you've noticed both what's great about it and the opportunity there? Um, it's your chance to seize that opportunity. So with music, you know, it's, it's, it's musical stuff, but it's fundamentally a sense that this is good, but it could be better. Um, with long now, it's temporal. It's like, this is good, could be better. You know, how could it be better? That's an interesting question. Let's play with that. Let's experiment. Let's see what we're capable of. Let's see how far our agency extends to get people better at this. Um, and then for philosophy too, it's like, you know, there's so much good philosophy out there. I'll never read all of it. And most people will never get around to all of it, but you know, there's stuff in there that's really good that, you know, maybe you want to build on, maybe you want to add to, and then that's, it's a worthwhile place to jump in. Definitely. I love that. And I, I think it's a great reminder to, um, you know, very few people think about the long term, even like 10 years out and let alone hundreds or 10,000 years. Um, but, but it seems very important for our future as a species to think about it because we're, it seems like we're pretty good at solving problems if we can name them and talk about them. You know, we, we seems like we're usually able to get through them, although there's plenty of exceptions. Um, but do you think that's a really important part of the pro of um, kind of the, the process is just just let's think about it. Let's sit down and at least be thinking about these problems. Um, is that kind of, um, do you think that's integral? Absolutely. No, I think I am blown away by how good we are um, at problem solving, right? Once we do sit down and notice what's happening, but it does take this moment of stopping, right? And there's a stopping and thinking, uh, you know, and before it kind of precedes action, there's a mo there's an opportunity to stop and reflect and say, okay, what, what is, well, like I just said, what is, what is going all right? What is not going all right? How do I jump in? Where's my point of intervention? Um, when we do that well, we do that really well as a species we do. And so, yeah, that's my attraction to long-term thinking. It's, it's, it, there, there's a space and a conversation around long-term action as well about acting um, so as to influence the next hundred years or thousand years. But really for me, the, the, the deep attraction I think comes from the space of thinking and reflection and contemplation and saying, if we stop, you know, stop what you're doing on any given day, Tuesday, it's Tuesday today, stop on a Tuesday, think about all the things that are going really well. Anything you can do in there to keep those things going, keep those things going in the right direction. And then think about the things that aren't going well. Think about the things that aren't going to change. Think about your point of intervention. The more thoughtful and reflective you can be about how you spend your time and energy and resources, I think the better the outcome is. I think that's kind of almost the definition of thinking in a certain way, right? Is like actually um, pausing to consider all your different options and choosing, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote better option. Um, so yeah, I do think it's important to stop and I do think it's important to give it a name. I think we can't really solve, we, we struggle to fix things that don't have names as problems. But as soon as people do kind of coin a term or, and people, and this is an aesthetic thing too, people have a general, they have, a, they have an intuitive sense when you name something just right. And they're like, that's the thing. You know, I think for a lot of people, long now touches that kind of a thing where it's like, oh yeah, you know, as Stuart Brand wrote, civilization is revving itself into a pathologically accelerated, um, pathological acceleration and it's like oh yeah if it's 
that's a, that's a real feeling that a lot of people have. Um, they've had it for now for 25 years. Um, it hasn't left for me. I still think we're revving ourselves into a pathologically short attention span, and I want to address that. So, but but naming it is an important part of that process. Yeah, making it legible seems really important because you know you can't even discuss anything if you don't have a common knowledge around what mm-hmm. it even is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious. For the listeners that might not be familiar with Long Now, uh, you guys have a, a lot of really cool projects. And so I don't want to pick, you know, make you pick, pick your favorite child. But, you know, what are you particularly excited about, about what you guys have been working on recently? Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm going to resist saying everything. Um, yeah, since we kind of jumped right into this with MyBio yeah. and some talk about it, you know, I, I touched on this Clock of the Long Now project. But that was really the inaugural uh, project that got all of this started. It was this idea that we needed a monument to the future the same way the pyramids of Giza are a monument to the past. What does it mean to even build a monument to the future? What, like, what does that even look like? And in a certain sense, a clock is that, a mechanical clock especially. The future states in 1,000 years and 10,000 years are there presently. Like if you and I were to go visit right now, those states of the world are baked into what we're encountering here in the present moment, and yet and yet not, right, in this really kind of interesting way. Um, you know, the pyramids themselves are inert, they're, they're static, uh, and the past is static in a certain way, but the future is a lot more dynamic, it's a lot more mysterious, and the clock is a lot more dynamic and a lot more mysterious, you know, and so I, I love that project. I love the mythic aspects to it. I love, I love the aesthetics of uh, building something deep inside of a mountain, where it's going to remain for a while um, before people, you know, get to explore it and discover it. And it's, it's, it's a really special project. And so I, I can't not mention that one here when we're talking, but out of that project came, you know, our seminar series where we started inviting experts to come talk about their work in the context of the next and last 10,000 years. And so at this point, I think there's been about 250 seminars where people, you know, Nobel laureates, science fiction authors, artists, you name it, have come to talk about their work in this larger context. And this is an opportunity for us to learn. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for all the different perspectives that people have been able to bring to bear on this long now question, this long now framework. So that's always, you know, always enlightening and and it continues to be enlightening. We have one of these talks just about every month. Um, Now they're almost completely virtual virtual and available online for people to join us all around the globe. Um, and I encourage all of your listeners to, to join us for one. Um, there's a seminars project. We run an award-winning cocktail bar here in San Francisco oh, awesome. called The Interval, which has a two-story floor-to-ceiling library with every book you would want to jumpstart civilization. It's called The Manual for That's Civilization. Cool. It's, yeah, it's everything from how to make steel, how to get penicillin, to Shakespearean sonnets and Socratic dialogues, nice. science fiction books. It's the whole, the whole gamut. Um, there's also some uh, scale down prototypes of the clock project there, um, as well as a bunch of other Easter eggs too for anybody that pays us a visit here in San Francisco. So that's the interval. I love that project as well because it it creates a center for a lot of community and this amorphous community that doesn't quite have a name. I mean, long-term thinkers is a name for people, but it really pulls all different kinds of folks together. Um, there are so many different things that... Uh, There are so many different areas of concern that are rich for long-term thinking, whether you're working in public health or whether you're an entrepreneur or technologist, whether you're a philosopher, whether you're a 
uh, a linguist, you know, you start thinking about languages on long time scales and certain things become apparent. Um, that's a project that we have too that I really love is the Rosetta project. Um, the Rosetta project is inspired by the original Rosetta Stone, but the idea was, you know, in this time that we're living in of rapid linguistic um, extinction, you know, we're losing a language every couple of months now. Are, is there some way we can preserve human languages in documentation for posterity? So things like dictionaries, grammars, vocabulary lists, parallel text translations. Um, we gathered thousands of languages, thousands and thousands of pages of documentation, and then worked to etch it onto a nickel disk um, called the Rosetta disk. And we have some smaller versions too, which are wearable. But one of those Rosetta disks, there's about a hundred copies. Uh, one of them is on a comet, Comet 67P that rubber ducky shaped, com shaped comet that the European Space Agency landed on a few years back. And then uh, another one is on the surface of the moon. Um, the Beresheet pro uh, mission landed a copy there. And then we have a bunch of terrestrial copies as well. And so in long-term archiving, there's this phrase locks, L-O-C-K-S-S, uh, lots of copies keep stuff safe. <laughs> and so the idea is have as many copies in as many places as you possibly can. Um, and so that's what we're working on with Rosetta Project. That, that is another one that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, we have a betting platform. There's the Woolly That's Mammoth cool. project that gets a lot of attention. There's so many things that Long Now is involved in. Um, and I think they're all really interesting. A at some level, for me, the most interesting thing about all of these is what other people bring to them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, the Rosetta project's interesting. What's almost infinitely interesting then is what people think about when they hear about the Rosetta Project. What does that make them think about? How do they think about their, their language differently? Or how do they think about archiving differently? Or just, is this the first time they've ever thought about archiving on millennial timescales? Uh, so it's really what people bring to, and, and, and this is the idea of this stuff, is it's less that the clock is how you think long-term. Like that's not what it's right. there for. What it's there to do is to inspire you to think long-term, to expire future generations to think about this. And, and what's possible, again, it, it's this tension between the finite and the infinite for me, where there's an infinite number of answers to that question of like, what, what occurs to you when you think on a 10,000 year time scale? So for me, it's endlessly interesting just to hear, to learn from other people, what it is that opens up for them when they get permission, you know, and, and for a lot of people, you know, they come into the interval, for example, it might be the first time they've had permission to think about thousand to 10,000 year time scales. It's not really something that's asked of everybody. Usually at your job, you know, you might be tasked at for like a, some kind of a forecast that maybe goes into the next quarter or the next year, maybe, maybe in the next couple of years. Uh, but rarely is anyone ever asking you for your thoughts on what's going to happen in 4,000 years. Uh, you come to the interval, that's a little more common. And so I'm endlessly interested just with what other people are discovering, um, listening to those voices from all around the globe, from all these different backgrounds, pulling that constellation of thinkers together is probably the thing that most interests me amongst all the stuff that we're doing. It's, it's not really its own standalone project, although we are working um, to build standalone projects that'll serve this kind of a global community of long-term thinkers, kind of build a, a field of long-term thinking that, you know, is more than just a, a Bay Area affectation at a cocktail bar, you know, um, in Fort Mason, but it really is this thing that includes all kinds of people representing all kinds of aspects of civilization, thinking about, yeah, what, what do we want to see? in the next few thousand years? Like, what are we concerned about? What do we wish we were paying more attention to? All of these kinds of things. Um, it's an almost endless field of, you know, of, of, of uh, 
considerations. Um, and that for me is really the richest part of all the projects that we do. I love that. I love that. Um, I've got one more big question for you. Yeah. Um, existential risks. How worried are you about them? And um, do you think we should be worried about them more? Well, okay. How worried am I about existential risks? Super worried. They're existential risks. They're existential yeah, by definition. Who's not worried about, <laughs> you know, the possibility of their non-existence? Um, X risks are, are a real thing. Um, should we be more worried about them? Well, I don't think people should be anything. I'm, I'm a little averse to telling people what they should be. I know people that are extraordinarily worried about X risks. Um, sometimes it's the people that are extraordinarily worried about these things that help me be less worried. So, you know, we, <laughs> like we've so someone's, wor someone's working on it. Yeah, somebody, somebody, somebody's thinking about it at least. Um, but what I would add to the, to the conversation is that I don't know if there's ever been a time in civilizational history where there haven't been serious effectively existential risks. Now I know like from a definitional standpoint, existential risks aren't catastrophic risks. And, and, and there's, so there's some distinctions that I'm sure your listeners are probably sensitive to. So I don't want, without tripping in the definitional problems around what is an X risk, what is a catastrophic risk? What is, you know, what are these different degrees? I think like civilization is a fragile thing. It's not a table stakes baseline thing. It's an achievement and it takes effort and it takes maintenance and it takes renewal. And so X, X risks, existential risks are real, but they've always been real. There's never been a time where we haven't been threatened with non-existence um, in the same sense that you and I personally, you know, there's never a day where you're not like in some way, theoretically at least, uh, threatened with non-existence. All of us hope it remains theoretical. Um, but the truth is like, you know, like, yeah, non-existence is a real thing to be concerned about. Um, should we be more concerned about it? Like, should people be allocating more resources to it, more time and attention? I, th I think when you start thinking about 100-year, 1,000-year, 10,000-year timescales, you get two categories of phenomena that start to reveal themselves. One is these threats, these like things that you didn't even know you were supposed to be losing sleep over, right? Uh, every time you go to like, you know, crack a new book on X risks, you're going to learn about a couple of things that you didn't even know you should have <laughs> right. been worried about this whole time. Um, and it's fascinating and it's, it's mind blowing and it makes you want to address these things. Cause you know, again, you name a problem, you identify a problem. Now you can solve the problem. So go solve the problem. Um, at the same time, you also notice this whole suite of uh, opportunities that rise up on hundred year, thousand year timescales. There are things that we're gonna be able to do in a hundred years that we can't even touch right now, right? In the same sense that you and I are recording this conversation through wireless waves in the sky that are going between my computer and your, it's absolutely mind blowing. If you were explaining it to somebody, you know, in the court of Louis XIV. And so there's a certain sense in which, well, when we look down a few hundred years from where we are right now, what else is gonna seem like that? You know, what are these huge opportunities we don't even know? Um, the threats, you know, can be addressed and should be addressed, and I'm glad people are addressing them. And I think if if what occurs to you when you think about thousand-year timescales is just all of these X risk threats, that's probably a good sign that that's what you should go do. You should go work on that. If that's if you can't stop thinking about asteroid impacts, 
you know, go, go reach out to the B612 Foundation. Right. They're working on that. Maybe you can help them out. They'd probably appreciate the help. And so there's a sense in which if this is stuff is calling out to you for your attention, uh, pay attention to that and go attend to it. And, and thank you on behalf of all the people who are going to hopefully live in a future where you've deflected the asteroid, right? Um, meanwhile, if what calls out to you is opportunities for working on other things, um, I don't think, you know, the, the the math of existential risks is so absolute that it almost it galvanizes the argument of how could you do anything other than work on this, right? There's just, just very compelling, right? It's like, yeah. well, how could you? How could you do anything <laughs> other than do this because it ends up being the only thing that matters? But I think there's a large there's a large set of things that if everyone just worked on them, they'd they'd get solved, right? Like, right. And, and so the solution can't always be just like by force, by, by, by edict, everyone right. now needs to work on asteroid deflection or something. I mean, that's both, both compelling in one register, but another register, not the most realistic way to go about this. So I tend to lean on the side of, of open-endedness of saying, well, if you think about long timescales, what sticks out to you? Maybe it's the threats, maybe it's the opportunities, whatever that is, um, if it resonates with you and you feel up to the task of intervening and working on it, please do. We need more people working on this stuff because right now there's a lot of bright minds and a lot of money going towards um, better attuning us to short-term phenomena, whether it's social ad media. Or, yeah, 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 exactly. All that ad tech, um, high-frequency trading. There's yeah. so, I mean, there's so many things that are just like dependent on these really short time scales. We're doing a pretty good job there, as far as I can tell. Um, again, this is an aesthetic judgment. I'm saying, you know, <laughs> hey, if I had if I had to put my thumb on the scale for one side, I'd absolutely want to put it on the side of more long-term thinking, uh, more long-term thinkers, and that includes people who are working on and thinking about the threats and the opportunities. I think they're both really important. And I, I really love that because I think it's that's very actionable. You know, that's very it's a very actionable stance, very actionable advice. It's like, well, you know, look at the long term. And, and think about, you know, what really sticks out is something you think you could have an impact on and you think is important. Um, well, Nick, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find your work? Absolutely. Uh, longnow.org is the place to find all of the information about our projects, uh, both the ones that we've been doing these last 25 years, as well as all of our plans for the next 25 years. That's uh, L-O-N-G-N-O-W.org. Uh, longnow.org. Um, and you should also, you know, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook or Twitter. We've got social media channels there as well. Um, and if anyone's ever in San Francisco, I highly recommend they stop by the interval for a drink um, and they can check out some of our museum artifacts and our library. There is a wonderful installation by Brian Eno and a chalkboard drawing robot and uh, a bunch of other, a bunch of other really cool things that you'll discover on your visit. That's awesome. I can't wait. Next time I'm in, I'm in town, I'll check it out. Looking forward to it, Will. Thanks so well, much for having me on. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.